Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Darcy Thompson-Fields. And my name is Nathan Anibaba and this is the CEO.Digital Show. This is an open-ended exploration of markets, technology, trends, ideas and strategies that will help you better deliver results for your company and your stakeholders. You can learn more and stay up to date at CEO.Digital. Nathan, how did you find this episode with Hugh? Absolutely loved it. I loved what he said about the power of free markets as a force for good in the world, the power of capitalism. And it was really inspiring and just really motivated me personally. A really fresh perspective. What about you? What did you think? Yeah, I thought he was really interesting. I really liked our conversation around, you know, the future of the sustainable data centre and talking about sustainability as a wider topic. Obviously, it's such a prevalent issue for, you know, businesses and individuals. And he really seems to be driving that through his leadership. Couldn't agree more. Shall we get into the episode? Yeah, let's do it. Our guest this week is Hugh Owen. He is the CEO of Arc Data Centres. He was formerly CEO of Atlas Consortium and Vice President EDS, former Managing Director and VP of HPES Defence and Security, and was President of BT Global Health, BT Global Services, and is obviously now currently the CEO of Arc Data Centres. He started his career in the Royal Hong Kong Police, latterly as a detective inspector, became a qualified lawyer and spent a year in Cambodia with the Asia Foundation, followed by consultancy work with the UN. Hugh Owen, welcome to the CEO.Digital show. Great to be here. Your background in history is so unique and interesting. You've lived in Zimbabwe and Hong Kong. You've been detective inspector of an organised crime unit where you led a task force and you put yourself through law school. Um, and you did consultancy work with the UN in Tajikistan as well. What perspective do those experiences give you and how do they shape the, the way you think about business and your own career development? I think they bring a good deal. I think, first of all, just on a very, very human basis, you see people in some of those countries with absolutely nothing, who are the most generous, most smiley most easygoing, happy people. And I think you sort of tend to carry that with you. I wake up every day and I just feel immensely grateful to live where I live and have the opportunities that I have. You also realise that in a lot of those countries, the countries were fundamentally broken as a result of despotic regimes or um, war and people had lived through an awful lot. And getting that basic rule of law back together was essential. And you realised how lucky, again, we are to live in the countries we are. Um, and I think that gave me a real sort of sense of crusading about doing the right things on behalf of people. And I think I've certainly carried that into business. I regard my prime duty as a CEO, as MD of a company, my people. That's That's a duty. And every one of my board members knows that that's um, a duty as well. I'd say finally the thing that I've brought from that, you know, I grew up in um, Zimbabwe, the country was at war, sat out the Khmer Rouge offensive in Cambodia. I was in crime wing in Hong Kong and obviously some very good criminals. So you've been in harm's way. So you've faced some pretty dangerous situations. You've seen the consequences to others. Mm. So I do have a bit of a saying, which is most situations in business life, nobody's dead. Yeah. So it gives you a sense of proportion in what you're dealing with as well. So I'd say those are the main takeaways. Of course. I think that's really reflected as well. We noticed when connecting with you that you list these experiences on your LinkedIn first over your leadership roles at HP, BT and ARC. And, you know, what does what can you tell us about the emphasis that you place on your early experiences? I think I've got a little bit of a brain that works in a sort of quite logical order. So when asked to list my experiences, I sort of begin at the beginning and end at the end. So there's a little bit of that in there. Yeah. But equally, if you set about building a house, where I am now is born of all of those past experiences and all of those past learnings, which I've layered one on top of another. So I think that I do believe that I'm the person that I am today and I have the experiences and the knowledge and the know-how that I have today as a result of those earlier experiences. Mm. And I think that's why I ordered in those that in that way as well. I also think that, you know, business life has been exciting and challenging and very rewarding in a host of different ways. But 
as a very, very young man, sort of in the heat of um, Hong Kong, the smells, the noises, the culture, growing up in Africa, a year in Cambodia, sort of sitting out that sort of Khmer Rouge offensive and so on. These were these were big learning growing up sure. experiences. And I think they play very loud in my mind. Mm. And, you know, I look back and I just smile and just think, how lucky did I get really? So I think there's that as well. There's things always get a little better as you get a little older, I think. Yeah. No, well, those are some really fascinating experiences. And in addition to those, you have had some incredible leadership experiences, as we touched on in the intro. So, you know, Atlas Consortium, EDS, BT Global Health, and obviously in your role as a CEO. So what has been your biggest takeaway from those leadership experiences that you're now using in your role as CEO of ARC? I think that the biggest thing is to always have at the heart of everything to do integrity. Mm. Because I think integrity is just your absolute true north. So it's good for you as an individual. But equally, I think that's where the much used phrase now, authentic, mm. comes from. You've got to be authentic. Well, you can try being authentic, but that stems from a very strong sense of who you are and what you stand for, where you want to go to and what good looks like. And I think to me, being true to yourself, having a real understanding with yourself, having discipline in yourself, being that person so you can be that visible model leader is the most important to me, that authenticity. You know, I give everybody in any business that I go to absolute permission to do anything that I do. You know, if I'm a lazy git that doesn't actually commit, doesn't crack on, well, be the same. If I'm the guy that comes in, turns up every day, seems to give a damn, works incredibly hard, wants the right things to be done by the company, then I just ask you to do that as well. So I think it is that yeah. act with integrity, hold that at your heart. I think that's a great philosophy to go by. So Coming on to a bit about ARC data centres and what you do, obviously, as we all know, data centres are essential to house critical applications and data and to empower connectivity, an issue that is even more prevalent in this working from home era. So on that, I'd like to touch on, you know, what does the next generation of data centre look like? I think data centres, if you were just to stare at the buildings, won't look an awful lot different to what they look today. Beyond, there will be bits of mechanical and electrical apparatus sat outside that will, over the years, I think, disappear. I think that you'll see, you know, if you came down to ARC data centres, we still have got diesel generators. Um, they burn fuel that produces um, waste. And I don't think that that's a route of travel that we can uh, continue with. Mm. So I think that that will change. And I think that's an incredibly positive thing. You think that 70 or 80 percent of data in the UK, for instance, is still held in pretty old, pretty dated, pretty sweaty data centers. Yeah. So if you lift that into a modern data center like ARCS, you're already saving vast amounts of energy therefore being really, really good for the planet and you're saving yourself money. So that's great. Um, so that's been a good first stage. But moving forward, what do we need to do? We need to start looking. And it's brilliant to see the likes of Google and Microsoft and Amazon and others beginning to lead the way, saying that they want to be carbon neutral. So if you look at our Enfield site, we went there and that is um, linked to a waste generation plant, 100% green power. When you look at our hay site, which we've just acquired, we're looking at gas generation there. So I think this power and energy and focus on climate change and sustainability has to be right. You know, ARC has been 100% sustainable um, power sources since 2015. So we've really led the way here, but we've got to keep going. We've got to just really, really focus on that pragmatically, or we become a public football in the media but also just because it's simply the right thing to do. Yeah. And then we'll see changes, you know, human beings, what do we do around um, fusion energy? What do we do about all these sources that could drive data centers? Quantum computing, where will that take us in terms of speed of communications and the like? I think computing will get smaller and more efficient. 
Um, so we're going to see progress. You know, human beings are just the most incredible things and we find solutions to problems. And I think we've got some burning issues. And one of the biggest ones is climate change. So we just need to get a hell of a lot better around how we power uh, data centers, which are pretty energy thirsty. Absolutely. And, you know, as you said, climate change is a huge issue and sustainability is or should be at the top of every agenda for every every country and business. And at Arc Data Centres, you do operate a socially responsible data centre, which helps businesses, your clients achieve their carbon reduction goals. And, you know, you are one of the only data centres to offer such a service. That's a massive pull for businesses who do have sustainability targets. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's just a mindset. I think a lot of people do what I would call, well, it's called greenwashing, isn't it? That you put out your publications and you say a few things that you do and, yeah. you know, up go the balloons and off you walk into the horizon. I think it's a mindset. It's about feeling it as a duty as a group of people who are members of a community to be seen to be doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And I think we've got a group of people at ARC that genuinely care about these things. The town halls we have every quarter, that dialogue between each other. If I look at my head of design, Pip Squire, he's an absolute crusader about this stuff. And, you know, even if we were to drift, Pip would keep us honest. So, you know, right from are there points on your sites where people can charge electric cars? Yes or no? Um, Are you thinking about what's going on around your data centers? You know, we've got bat runs and badger runs, and we've got a lot of greenery around our sites. Are you doing water harvesting? Are you actually powering uh, your data centers with solar panels for all of the office stuff? Um, Have you got ecological toilets? So you're saving hundreds of thousands of liters of water every year. Um, How do your supply chain, where do you source stuff from? How do they operate in the world down their supply chain? And then the bigger things, can we find more efficient ways of and cleaner ways of generating these, removing uh, big diesel generators? How can we utilize um, gas? How can we utilize waste generation and wind? And as I say, all of our sources have been um, green and sustainable since 2015, but that's not good enough. How do we get even better? So I think it's coming to work with that sense of duty And that mindset that is constantly looking for things that just make you better in this regard. And I think we've got a great pool of really talented people that passionately care about this stuff. And that keeps me and my team honest, which is great. Before we come to talk about ARC in more detail, just on the topic of sustainability, with everything that you've just described from the point of view of what corporations are doing, what uh, businesses are doing, what governments are doing to achieve our sustainability targets. Are you hopeful about the future in terms of whether or not we're able to reduce the carbon emissions necessary in in order for us to create a sustainable home here on, on planet Earth? Wow. Big question, Nathan. If I look at some of the things that will need to happen before we create meaningful change. In a sense, the pandemic's given me hope. We've confronted a crisis. um, And whether you think lockdown's right or wrong in the circumstances, we have caused a lockdown. And the planet, as a consequence of that, has breathed a little easier, albeit that China is now open, and I think driving at higher levels of pollution than before we actually locked down. But it does feel that globally we can come together and we can cause change if we really need it. But we only seem to do it at times of crisis. Mm -hmm. And while there is a generation coming through now that are causing huge advocacy, and I think it's front and center of people's thinking now, and people are genuinely beginning to wake up, Mm. we are waking up quite late. And I still think that there's an awful awful lot of lip service. And then, of course, we've had some pretty bad global leadership, haven't we? You know, the the US and backing out of Kyoto and a lot of the other things that have happened do make you feel a little um, bleak on occasion. But then I swing back and I just look at what human beings have overcome in their history. And I look at the the younger generation coming through who passionately care about these things and are looking at the world different. I think there is a less greed in the mix and more care about who you work for and what they do in the world. And you look at B Corp and the likes of those that are starting to grow and and develop muscle with some very powerful business people behind them. I think it's growing. 
Is it growing fast enough? We'll see. Mm. I suspect that we're going to take a nudge, a very hard nudge, um, before we really start acting as we need to. But there's hope. There's hope. And I'm, you know, we're an ingenious bunch human beings. So I, I remain hopeful. I remain hopeful because I refuse to be any other way. <laughs> Let, let's talk about ARC data centers in a bit more detail. Your clients include some of the biggest cloud providers in the world, companies in regulated markets, service providers, public sector and telcos. What are clients buying when they buy ARC data centers that's different to what other data centers out there provide? You know, this is really interesting. We, we did a branding exercise about two or three years back and we got these very bright marketeers in and they said you know tell us about yourselves and we told them and they said look what we'd really like to do is we'd like to talk to your clients um so what we did we connected them up to a pile of our clients of differing sorts from different institutions and our only engagement was just to phone and say would you mind um this is the purpose of it and please just be brutally honest and um they came back and they said to us, well, it's really interesting. If you sift through all of the noise and you just um, focus on what people are saying, they say two things. Said very polite C-suite uh, people say, well, the thing is they really seem to just care. They care about us and our business. And the other thing is from the frontline operators who tend to be a little bit more um gruff and forgive my language here, <laughs> they used a phrase, um, they give a shit. Mm. And I will I will take that any day of the week, but that is hard one. And you know, we've got one of our values is zero tolerance for anything that impacts our clients' uh, operations. We did a big procurement, it was one of our first uh, when I took over and we won it against some big competitors. I think um, I actually surprised the business when we won it. And we took feedback. We'd won, and they were a bit surprised we wanted feedback. You can always get better. And they said to me, um, well, you're capable. I thought, well, great. You know, that's cards <laughs> of the table, isn't it? High accolation. Yeah. Right. Consultative. And I, I asked, well, could you explain that to me? And they did. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And they said, well, you're just a breath of fresh air to do business with. You know, you genuinely seem to care. And this isn't me. This is my people. Then the middle one, the consultative, was interesting. You know, data centers have come out of predominantly a real estate background, which is by its nature, although I think this is improving since we've been in play, highly transactional. Nathan, you want some space? Great. I've got some. How much do you want? Brilliant. How much will you pay it for me? Yeah. How, how long do you want for? 10 years. Brilliant. Well, look, let's shake hands, sign the paperwork, and I'll see you in 10 years. Mm. I don't think that highly transactional is good enough. When you're looking after people's core operating assets, things that sure. they rely on to build, to, act, to work from home, to run governmental services, to protect our nation, you have to really, really care. Mm. So every single one of our clients has got a obviously direct access to a 24-7 um, help desk, but so what? Each one of them has, has a client delivery executive who, if they can't get something um, quick enough, They've got a single phone call to make to that individual who's 24-7 there for them. He'll do their monthly reporting. He'll engage with them how well we've done, what we haven't done, take their complaints or things they're worried about. We'll engage with them on maintenance strategies and all the rest of it. So I think it's that. And then obviously we do business um, in the public sector to quite sort of high security categories, which I think gives people confidence. Well, they're good enough to do that. Well, maybe they'll be good enough to do my business. And you look at our official offering, which is just our, you know, vanilla offering between hitting our gates and touching a server is about 13 levels of security. So we take pride in that as well. And I think that comes again, it comes to mindset of our people. So I think that's what people are buying. And obviously, myself and other members of my board have sat at board level in these big tech companies. So we understand the problems they confront, the governance they have to go through, um, the challenges day to day they have to get stuff done. And we've been there, lived it. So we can have conversations and ultimately people do business with people. So if you're yeah. capable of having those dialogues, they feel comfortable with you. Um, so I'd say, does, does that give you the flavor of an answer? 
It really does. And it, it also prompts another question, you know, the, the fact that most people don't really think about data centers often enough. When you think about how important they are about, I guess, running the the fundamental, I guess, the way that the modern internet functions and yeah. the largest cloud providers in the world operate, people don't think enough about the importance of modern data centers and the foundation of what we know as the modern internet. Yeah. And you've got me red-faced, okay? So I was that uh, CEO running, you know, multi-billion pound businesses who had data centers at the heart of his tech stack. And I used to go down to my data centers and they saw me twice, really, <laughs> on two two sorts of occasions. I wandered around doing a visit and I walked around. If it didn't look like a snake's wedding, <laughs> I um, I thanked them. I yeah. asked them, was there anything I could do to assist us? Which most of the time they said no, because they wanted me off the premises and out of their <laughs> lives. Um, or the next time they heard me was something had gone snap in their data center and I was the guy who wanted it fixed yesterday. Um, so did I appreciate in the manner that I should have the world-class engineering that goes into these data centers? No, I didn't. And I've said it on public stages. I apologize to everybody on every occasion that I visited your data center and didn't understand what you were actually doing as I should have. Yeah. So that's the first thing. So it's not just the public that don't understand it. Frankly, shame on me. Mm. But then if you look at the um, Industrial Revolution, what was that born of? It was born out of bringing people into factories and machinery and enabling processes that rendered us more efficient, mm -hmm. that allowed us to drive our economies forward. Data centers are those modern day factories, in my view. Mm. Just think about it. They sit at the base of the 21st century industrial revolution. They wear all of the machinery, in other words, the servers uh, on which all of the applications sit, that drive and enable everything that we do. Every single one of us here has sat with our smartphone. We sit with an object in our pocket that carries more computing power in it than the first rocket that went to the moon had on board. Mm. And we have it at our disposal um, in our pocket. Then you think of the huge supercompute that's grinding away data. Um, all the things that are being done that's taken stuff out of the human domain. You know, we used to be limited by we all needed to sleep. The scientists needed to sleep. They needed to the loo. They needed to eat. And they probably wanted a life. <laughs> um, now we've got supercomputers driving 24-7, uber-connected. You can talk to your friend in Australia and God mm. knows what, at any time that you want. And at the bottom of that stack, the 21st century industrial revolution factory are data centers. Mm. And we oft forget about them. And, um, I think we do it at, at, at our expense, actually. I completely agree. You know, data centers are at the core of everyone's tech stack and they are driving our connectivity and our ability to operate as we've become accustomed to both, you know, from a business perspective and personally. And, you know, we began to touch on earlier some of the security measures that you have in place at Arc data centers. And, you know, it security is so important and so core to something that is so critical um, to the way we run our lives and businesses. So how do you ensure that your customers' data is kept safe and secure? Can't tell you. No, I'll, <laughs> let, let me... I can't can't reveal the secret. Or, or Darcy, I could, but I'd have to kill you. The, um, <sighs> some of that security um, is classified. It's not stuff that we would talk about in the public domain, but... Um, as I said earlier, just on our official stack, there's about 13 layers of security between front gate and touching a server. But I think an awful lot of it is having real expertise in this area. So we've got people, um, our security experts, every single one of our sites from the moment we acquire it, we're looking at about how we um, secure those sites. 
And an awful lot of that goes through um, all sorts of levels, physical security, um, networks and, and everything else. And then rules, tools and processes around the site as well. But also, you know, an awful lot of time people will um, think about security in the terms that I've just spoken. But ultimately as well, every single one of our employees and anybody that works on our sites will be security cleared um, at all sorts of different levels. And also we've got a mindset again. Um, ultimately, if you look at a number one factor for um, security breaches anywhere, not, not just in data centers, but globally, um, it will be a disgruntled employee or a disgruntled individual gaining access to equipment. Sure. So we've got policies that are very different to a lot of companies where if we feel that somebody is grossly underperforming or is disgruntled or um, has whatever issues they have, we immediately don't look to the normal rules of employment law. We simply compromise people there and then and it ends immediately. And that's a mindset to it, which might seem um, a little hard on the individual concerned. We're respectful. We'll do that in a proper manner. And obviously, we'll pay for their legal advice and the rest, rest of it. But we've got to do that, just given the nature of what we do. So I think as an organization, we act and behave in a different manner. Um, our employees are selected and, and they're screened. And obviously, we adopt a posture that's um, different to a lot of organizations. And as I've said on a host of other things, how you do business, how you look at your clients, how you do things, it's very much a mindset. And we take huge pride in who we are and who we work for and um, feel a very heavy duty towards our clients on these things as well. I hope at a high level that gives you a sense of what we're about within this area. It does. And I presume I can stay alive with that information? You certainly can, Darcy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure about Nathan, but... No, oh, no, right. okay. <laughs> I'm going to have to dig myself out of the hole. <laughs> you talked a moment ago about the importance of AI, machine learning and robotics. What role does AI and machine learning play in the building and maintaining of a modern data center? Because we know that sort of uh, sort of any modern tech startup today, all they need to do is add machine learning and AI in front of their uh, proposition to investors, and they tend to get a, a boost in their um, in their investment package. It seems to be the way that the world is going at the moment. What role does AI and machine learning play in what is a modern data center? Um, well, if you look at uh, construction, first of all, well, go back to design and you look at, you know, computer-aided uh, design, um, high-powered computer and design and all of that plays a huge amount um, with our architects and with our online design teams. Um, when we build and as we try to gain ever greater efficiency in our builds and how the buildings operate, all of the lessons learned from every build will be put back into our design team. And they will use very, very sophisticated um, computing power to actually work through how you optimize that. If we did this, what would happen? What are the consequences of that? Then construction on site, you know, we use an awful lot of quite sophisticated robotics to do manual roles around the sites and so on. And then you come into operations. Well, if you look at the um, blade rooms that we run on our sites, it's uh direct air it comes in it goes through some filters it then goes through what the romans invented adiabatic uh chilling mm. then goes a pressurized corridor and then it's all compute you look at sensors all around those pressurized corridors that actually move the slats and the doors the blades and they're picking up how much cooling does this room need this equipment need it then allows that amount of chilled air into the room. The equipment's own fans draw it through into hot aisle. It's expunged out into a hot corridor. They then sense what the demand looks like. They either open the louvers or they close the louvers or they recirculate that heat. All of that is just incredibly efficient compute and very sophisticated. So it's that. Then if you look around the um, sites in terms of the operations of the um, mechanical electrical equipment, in terms of maintenance cycles, 
visitations of engineers, all of that will be aided through pads that people can visit and things they can click on, but also on sensors, sort of nano sensors and a lot of the equipment that are throwing up. Look, I'm sensing that something's running a bit hot or something's wearing a little bit or something needs maintenance sure. fed into a central control that enables the engineers to then either go and investigate. And if it's something that needs or it goes into a maintenance schedule. So I'd say that compute and, and the artificial learn stuff is really, really interesting. And actually this is something we're working on at the moment, because if you think of particular pieces of equipment, which we duplicate time and time again, because standardization obviously brings cost, but also efficiency. If each piece of equipment we're picking up actually trends that when we do it this way, we seem to get a bit more and they seem to last a bit longer. When we've done this, if we've changed it, that you're getting that learning in the systems, that the learning's being fed in and we can benefit from that. So, you know, compute AI is at the heart of our operations and I think will become ever more so. Mm, Really fascinating. Hugh, in in the pre-interview, we talked about what things drive your career and you said something really interesting. You said, quote, I've always been attracted to things that other people are running away from. Uh, what's the worst that could happen? Which I thought was really interesting. It really interesting choice of words. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I had a farming friend who set up a really, really um, successful drainage and portaloo business. And I always remember saying to me, "What?" Because he, what he didn't want to do, he didn't want to lose employees. Um, and as the farms were scaling down and so on, so he thought, "Well, I could utilize people that can run machinery, weren't afraid of a bit of you know hard work." And um, a lot of the equipment that we've got on the farm, and that would allow them to be usefully employed. So it had a great thing at the heart. And he said, where there's muck, there's brass. And that's sort of my thing. So I've come from a pretty robust background. So, you know, Jesuit raised, country at war, Hong Kong police, country at war, Khmer Rouge, all the rest of it. Mm. It's a pretty robust. I was a lawyer. I realized I did a lot of troubleshooting, that I was quite good at that stuff. And I sat on a a park bench um, right next to King's College Hospital. I lived in Camberwell. And um, I just had this thought, Hugh, how the hell do you differentiate yourself? How do you find something that other people don't want to do and get really, really good at it? Mm. And um, I just thought, well, I'm quite good at dealing with crises and I'm quite good at dealing with mess. And I seem to be able to find my way through problems Um, So why don't I do that? And I think ever since I've just the moment that I saw smoke and flames and accounts falling down or businesses toppling, off I was, you know, fire extinguisher in hand. And I just love it. Mm. I just love taking broken and chaos and disorder and things on the floor Mm. and handing them back in good order. It just I just find it really fulfilling. Yeah. and I really enjoy it and I find it challenging and it keeps me interested. And I've got a really low boredom threshold. <laughs> and you're really good at it as well. I love it. Which Absolutely love it. Love it. Well, 2020 uh, must not have proved too much of a challenge for your boredom threshold, considering the challenges we've been presented with. Um, Obviously, COVID-19 has presented a huge challenge for businesses, Um, you know, not only kind of the challenge of working remotely, but being able to remain viable. And in May 2020, you wrote that the pandemic is doubtless presented a real challenge but the arc will remain open for business having proactively and intelligently planned your reaction to the various scenarios that may present so it would be great to know what scenarios did you consider at that point in time and how accurate were your projections so this is fascinating so because of our posture we conduct very very sophisticated um, exercises about every 15 months or so And when I say sophisticated, I mean sophisticated. Uh, My ops teams are locked in um, rooms and on the screens they've got um, television screens and BBC News feeds and it does look like the BBC News and it's reporters that you'd recognise. They've got social media feeds coming in and I think the first one we did was a, a train carrying chemicals went to 
and the chemicals started flooding across our site. So how are we going? How are they going to react to that? The next one was nuclear material found in the site. The next one, as you can imagine, and we link these out and we invite our clients to join us in these exercises. Mm. And the clients, you know, it's a discovery exercise for them. God, where is my disaster recovery manual? You know, blow dust, run around. Some of them are lot, lot better drilled, but they enjoy the exercise with us. And they're tough. They're really, really demanding. We've got people, you know, actors on phones phoning in. There's a local household who's shouting at, you know, all. So we really, really drive this stuff. So our what we call major incident um, procedures are well drilled. Uh, we know who's involved. We know roles. We know responsibilities. So I woke up and I, I've, as I've been talking, I've been thinking whether I should say this. On the 24th of March, I think it was. Before the 24th of March, I was running a fantastic business full of brilliant people. But it is now a large, steady state business. And, um, you know, I'm a turnaround guy. So I was probably wandering around looking for problems. And, you know, men plan the gods laugh. Um, so they gave me one. They gave me a pandemic. And I woke up. And I can remember my first thing was, and I shouldn't admit this, wow, fantastic. This is going to be interesting. Mm. And the calls began. I got gathered my team around. We called a major incident. All the process started kicking off. And to just see the guys starting to work, what all the angles were, regular calls, what we were looking at. Could we get access? Could we continue construction? What did our supply chain look like? What about our partners? If they lost other business, would they fall over? What about our clients? Who was vulnerable? Who was exposed to injuries, industries where they might be hurt? What we could, could we do to aid and assist them? What were we going to do about our employees? What would we do about regressing our help desk? That was all planned. How are we going to operate as a team? So all of those things, we worked our way through. Mm. Um, we came up with contingencies to deal with stuff. We went into 24-7 operating. So we had less people on construction sites, but we could still get the same work done every day so we could stay on schedule. Constant uh, elevated communications to our clients. Um, reaching out, proactively saying, what can we do? Because our ops people were still going to be on site. Um, it gave us an amazing opportunity to do great stuff for our clients. You know, I've probably won more accolades from clients during this period than I have in, you know, three three years previously, where we just got stuff done that they needed to do. Mm. Um, and we sort of drove it forward. And then we immediately instigated a twice weekly, to begin with, all employees call and a partner's call. So our security engineers, our partners. So we're constantly in dialogue. What they worried about, what were we worried about? We got a behavioral scientist, um, a couple of, you know, really, really um, amazing people to attend these calls. We got nurses from the front line. We got a woman who's a personal trainer talking about working from home, about procrastination, about mindsets, about a whole host of stuff. And yeah. then Myself and my leadership team kept the whole business's um, phone numbers on our desks and we took it upon ourselves to ring people one-to-one. -one. Anybody that we felt was struggling got assistance. Uh, we monitored situations. Mm. So it's just been this, um, this fantastic opportunity. You know, it's easy for me to say we're a brilliant organization. We really know what we're doing. The Myot's good, great culture. You know, we went through investors and people in that period. We were platinum again. That puts us in the what top one, two percent of employers in the UK. Yeah. But to see the banter, <laughs> to hear the banter at the beginning of starts of calls, to I do videos that I send out to uh, the guys and to get the feedback from them, and it's just great. Yeah. Um, and the little the little things like uh, Mike Marsh, who's one of our project managers, I said to him, you know, how you find it, Mark, and I want. Mike, on a one-to-one, -one, he said to me, oh, it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. It's such an opportunity. I went, what do you mean? He said, I'm in people's homes. We always used to be like two professionals, yeah. a bit like Now all of a sudden, he's got his young kid on his on his lap or a dog's barking and yeah. he's in my home. And all of a sudden, we're two human beings human engaging. Yeah. He said to me, you know, one of my sayings is humans do business with humans and <laughs> never forget that. And he said, it just really resonates with me now. And I never, he said, I never really understood it. So I just think we've, as an organization, have just really embraced this as an opportunity. And I've said, you know, my mantra from day one was let's do everything we can 
to be able to come together at the end of when this period is, whenever that is, and celebrate together and look back and feel proud. And I think people have embraced that. And and it's just been so rewarding to see as well. And people have blossomed, you know, just great innovation. Well, we're going to do the commissioning for a client who's in the States who can't travel. We're going to do it in this manner. That would work. And clients coming back and just loving it. Um, just fantastic stuff. Just well, the see. energy and the drive and the can-do attitude. I just love it. It's great to hear a positive story in these times and to hear about the success and innovation and creativity that you've been able to get uh, from your employees and from your team. And, you know, you joined ARC back in 2012 as CEO to lead a new management team following the recapitalization of the company. What are the components of an outstanding leadership team and how do you make sure you have the right skills, behaviours and attitudes of people who can lead you into the future? Yeah, it's, you know, I'd say that one of the biggest skills of any CEO is identifying world-class talent. And it is talent and character. Because you can be immensely talented. And I think the All Blacks have a saying, very sophisticated, you can be a dickhead. Um, And that is toxic to an organization. It's like putting cancer in the middle of the organization. Nobody joins ARC unless they've been personally met by a member of my leadership team, period. We take recruitment that seriously. Um, And we work really, really hard at it. You know, training is a massive amount. And it's not just all about technical training. There's a shed load of that. A lot of it's about developing people to have robust conversations to act well in crisis, to manage their time well, to to be good, whole, able human beings. So first of all, I was fortunate that I was asked by our investors to bring on board people that I trusted. So I brought on board, you know, my head of sales, my finance director, um, a guy that's now on the board but came in as a program manager who were, and also my people um, person, were all world-class people, tested in the heat of battle in major turnarounds with me and in no way found wanting. So I had a fantastic team to begin with. And then obviously you, you know, it's an unpleasant saying, but you have the night of the long knives, which I think needs to happen very, very quickly. That people that are just simply not going to survive the mark, you need to get rid of because otherwise you'll just have a very negative culture. So you need to do that really respectfully. These are people you need to do it quickly and you need to do it fairly, that you recognize the service they've done to date. And then you need to have a really honest moment, which is you need to take all personalities out of it because you can't design an organization like that. And what I do is I say, what outcomes am I after? And those outcomes need to be probably no more than four to six. They need to be critically clear. And then you need to say, what organization, what muscle do I need to to drive those outcomes. And that is really the people with the skills and the experience and the character to occupy the roles that you've drafted on that organization. And some of them you'll have, and some of them you won't. Mm. So you will have a community of people stood in the car park that if you can't train them up, a sort of surplus to requirement to get that organization going. Um, And then you're going to have to recruit in to populate that as well. And then the third question to ask yourself is, what are we going to stop doing to allow that muscle to drive those outcomes? Um, And that's really time, people, money are finite. So just keep trying to do everything. You're burning the muscle in a manner that isn't productive and you won't get the outcomes. So that's the sort of mechanics of getting it done. And then we just used a notion of high-performance organization, which is a a methodology used out of Maastricht Business School, a guy called Dr. Andre Duval. We surveyed ourselves. We looked at the gap between high-performing and ourselves. We drove that through. It took us two years to become high-performing, then worked with investors and people to look at how we do things, and we got gold. We now platinum and then retained that platinum, and then we looked at people So it's then getting external people to come and have a look at that culture. We get everybody together every quarter in person when we could. And there's training, there's updates on the business. 
Um, and in between those quarterly meetings, we have what's called tea and cakes, where people dial into a conference call. Nothing. There are no bad questions. We've got high performance champions around the business that take an interest in things that are worrying people. So we know what we can address. And then you find these absolute, you know, if you look at Lindsay, who's my um we don't use the word HR because I don't believe people are resources. A pencil is a resource. A person isn't. So she's my head of um, people leadership and change. She's 26. She's on my board. Uh, she was mentored by Manly Hopkinson, who's world-class um, people person. Um, and she is world-class at what she does. Uh, James Owen, he's um, on my board now. I brought him in previously. He deals with all our client experience. Andy Garvin, you know, he's been right through the organization, is now de facto COO. So you bring these young bloods. I think I've brought the average age of the board from 56 to 42, which, you know, is heading in the right direction for a tech company. And then you just have to never, ever take your people for granted. And I think Richard Branson said, train people so they can leave, treat them so they want to stay. Mm. And I believe in that. Um, I think we've got phenomenal talent phenomenal talent so so you talk about the high performance culture that you now have at arc explain what that looks like for those organizations that don't have a high performance culture what are what are the main differences in operations performance culture between an organization that does have a high performance culture as as the one that you've just described and one that doesn't well, the way that Dr. Andre Duval um, looks at it, um, to be a high performance culture, you've got to um, consistently and progressively over a period of five years or more outperform your peer group on profit. Hmm. So, you know, that that's just like this raw mechanic that he says, you know, business, you know, I use a formula R minus C equals P, you know, there's... Business in a bucket, revenue less cost equals profit. So if you just go do this driver, but he um, he basically renders. If you survey and you look at the management, the people, the processes, the way that you operate, a lot of it. I think I think there are thirty seven characteristics, and twenty eight of them are people related. Interesting. So it is about, I've always said, it's about having the right people with the right skills, with the right knowledge, with the right character, doing the right things in the right way with the right mindset. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Good things happen. And um, high performance, I think, has at its heart robust, effective communications. I don't think high performance organizations are multi-tiered and very, very hierarchical. I delight, when I first arrived, if I walked into a room, it was pretty much like Genghis Khan arriving at your village. (laughs) Everybody's head went down. Panic. How the hell can we just make him go away? (laughs) Now, you know, people will smile, they'll lift a hand, acknowledge it, nod. Oh, it's, you know, you're familiar. They know who you are. They have a lot of time with you. Equally, people also know that if I wander across, you probably ought to know what your three must-dos are that day. Mm -hmm. They also know if they walk in and I'm sat in the corner of the room because I don't I just sit with everybody else, um, and they open their laptop, and the first thing they do is respond to Mr. Email, I'm probably going to have a word with you Mm. because I want you in control of your day, not other people. And everything that you do, I want must, should, could, and clear in your head. It's the beginning of every year. So around about Christmas, I send out the 10 priorities for the next year. My leadership team look at them. They quiz and query them. We agree them. They then work them with their team. So at the heart of ARC, we've got a guiding thing, which is here are the priorities. Here are the individual units across. the, And here's what each one of you need to do against each one of those priorities to drive success against our priorities. So those are the must-do activities. If you're fiddling doing a lot of could-do stuff because Mr. Email asked you to, Hmm. and you're not doing your must-do, guess what? We're going to have an honest moment together because high-performance organizations spend a lot of time doing the stuff. It's like, you know, what was it? The 
CEO of Lotus or something wandered around asking every single member of the organization how they made the car go faster. It's a good way of looking at things. You know, how do you progress this business? And if you're spending a shed load of time on stuff that you don't really need to be doing because you haven't done your must do stuff, then, and I think it is about that discipline, that communication, that lean, shallow organization, uh, the processes being quick and active. Um, that differentiate high-performance organizations, keeping client front and center, keeping your people at the heart of the business, giving them a voice, giving them a sense of control, um, that differentiate high-performance organizations. And certainly at ARC, what I love, you know, the town halls, you get the questions now, and they're questions, and they're difficult questions, and they're because people care. You know, trying to shut them. When I used to walk in, it used to just be silent and tribal when I first arrived now. (laughs) trying to shut them up so you can actually say something. But I love it. There's nothing better than human burble and human laughter and human interaction. You know, it's people at its best, isn't it? Love it. Love it. Really, really interesting. Hugh, I could speak to you all day, um, and we both could, but let's get into our our speed round now towards the end of of the interview. These are the questions that a little bit more about you. So who is the man behind the brand sort of questions? So okay. we'll fire some questions at you. If you can fire some answers back, that'll be great. Um, we've answered this in a roundabout way so far in the discussion, but what, what's the philosophy that you have on the way that you think about growing your own career and your own personal and professional development? One of my values as an individual is lifelong learning. And it's, you know, it's got Kwame pace, but I worked that out with a very helpful woman when I was nine or 10. And lifelong learning, I think, is the only way to go. Never be too proud. Um, gather world-class people around you and learn from them. And, you know, if you, there's a magic moment in any career. Every world-class leader has been a world-class follower. And world-class followers are creatures of huge drive, huge energy, can-do spirits. They're ball carriers. The leaders turned around, given them tasks, and they've got them done, and they've got them done time and time and time again. And they're captains. They are captain of their ship. Everything that happens on that ship, they're in utter control of. Mm. And then you come to magic moment where you've got to take the, the leap. And I think it's where a lot of people fall. You've got to become the admiral. And the admiral cannot control all of his ships and his fleet he's got to be world-class at finding other world-class captains and then he's got to be capable of giving commanders intent and then he's got to fly air cover to allow those captains to do what they need to do and he's got to trust he's got to hold accountable and then you magnify that ability to cause change across a fleet of ships rather than just being captain of your ship and i think that that's where my philosophy is it's about finding world-class captains and learning and learning and learning and accepting it's all my fault something goes wrong it's my fault how could i have done that better because everything ultimately in life begins and ends in our heads you know i can't control everything But the hugely powerful thing is I can always control my reaction to anything. Mm, So I think it's it's that, you know, just live, learn, accept responsibility. Never, ever be the victim. The moment you use the word not fair, that's not fair. You've chosen to be a victim. And why would you ever choose to be a victim? So I think it's just that robustness finding good people, surrounding yourself by good people. They'll challenge you. They'll grow. They'll force you to learn and be a better you. Um, Celebrate when they get their own fleet, because that's just, it's so good to see. And then celebrate their success uh, in that fleet. You get the basket in glory, but call out what they have achieved. Sit in the background. You don't need to yell. You know, there's too much insecurity in a lot of people trying to claim credit for what the fleet has done. And you're simply one of the boats. What an amazing answer. Hugh, can I call you anytime I'm feeling low or down? Please do. What an amazing (laughs) answer. Absolutely love it. I wanted to ask you, Hugh, 
What do you think the evolution of the CEO role looks like? I think it's going to change drastically. And I'm really happy it is. Um, I am not a great fan of Friedman Economics. Friedman Economics is the good old greed is good. Uh, Ultimately, it's just shareholder value. Um, My shareholders, I have a duty to, to give a return to. Um, Ultimately, though, I should be a steward of my business. And my business has at its heart people with all of their dreams and their ambitions and their fears and their concerns. And they, in turn, are part of a community. And I think for too long, we've been too short term, we've been too greedy, and we haven't um, been stewards. We haven't looked at the longer term value that capitalism and businesses can bring to communities. And we've lost our way. And I think that's why you see this ever widening wealth gap. I think that's why you get people now throwing stones at CEOs and what CEOs earn. You get them disliking business. Uh, People starting to try and have a go at capitalism, which capitalism is the only thing that has actually made huge progress in the world. You know, you think where my grandfather was in the bowels of a Welsh mine and where I am in my community is, albeit I accept that there are a huge number of people with an awful lot of needs. Capitalism can work, but it can't continue in this sort of greedy model. So I think that CEOs need to morph from being shareholder knifeman uh just you know reeking out wringing out as much profit and return as they can in the shortest possible time for shareholders Mm. stewards of businesses that exist for large pools of people Mm. and exist within communities of which they're a valued part and i think you go right back to the origins of capitalism i think that's what it was and it's got a world of goodness in it but We've got to realign ourselves to that better purpose. I really like uh, the phrase stewards of business. I think that is exactly uh, where it will evolve to, hopefully, with your with your positive outlook. Um, So you've done you've described very well to us what you do. um, But how good are you uh, at sharing that with your family? So can you describe in one line what your family or friends think you do? Oh, um, I think my family and friends think that I do turnarounds. So I take underperforming businesses and I improve their performance. And I think all my family and friends know that what motivates me is taking broken. I'll be honest with you. I said it to you earlier. R minus C equals P, you know, large hurrah. How exciting is that? It, it You know, Business at its core, just stable, steady state business. Great. If it's well run, well managed, good steward, CEO, big contribution to the community, I like it. Well done. But I'm not a particularly steady state guy. I like mess. I like broken. I like people sort of looking concerned and then creating businesses that breathe life into livelihoods and are there for the future and the rest of it. So I think my my wife and my friends would understand that I do, that's what motivates me and turnarounds. That's why I've chosen to spend my life focused on, on that world in business. I think my kids used to get really confused because, you know, I run a defense and security business and I was off to Afghanistan and they could see the news and what the hell does dad actually do? (laughs) Um, When I was troubleshooting for merchant banks, I think I did 20 countries in two years or something. And I think my kids thought, dad's like an airline pilot or something he's always at airports but um i think generally i'm pretty open with people what i do and what motivates me and what doesn't motivate me um so i think my family and my friends and my kids have got a really clear view and with my kids in particular my wife and i my wife's a surgeon she and i always had an agreement that we would never have a moan or talk negatively about our days at work which we all do We'd save that when we're, I don't know, lying in bed together or before we went to sleep or something. But in front of the kids, we'd always present a positive view. So they took away that work is a positive, challenging, great thing to be cracking on with. And both of them seem to have um, a very positive outlook on life. So I think family and friends are pretty clear about what I do. Mm, Great answer. And actually, I've got pretty robust friends. So if they weren't, they just nail me. (laughs) 
We've thoroughly enjoyed hearing your thoughts today, Hugh. Everything about sort of the future of the CEO role, your thoughts on on free market economics, sustainability. Um, I think it's just been an, an absolute pleasure. Darcy, do you do you want to end with our last question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it feels bittersweet. I'm excited to find out your answer, but sad to end the show. Um, if you were asked to place a bet on where the future of the data centre. Uh, lies and where it will be in 10 years what would you say and how much would you bet i would bet the whole of your pension on the data centers remaining at the absolute base of this 21st century technology revolution hmm. what odds can you give me on that just trying to check my pension is secure <laughs> i'd say that it they will be different they would have evolved but they will still be there. They will still be more efficient, cleaner, quicker communicating data centers at the bottom of the stack um, 10 years from now. And I'd give you 90, 90% certainty on that. Perfect. And I'll run at 45%. So that's pretty high for me. Hugh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for being a guest on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Not at all. I've really, really enjoyed chatting to you guys and thank you more to the point. If you enjoyed this conversation, then you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music or wherever amazing podcasts are found. Thank you very much for your time. See you next time on the CEO.digital show. Hold up. 